Welcome to the New Books Network. As a number of scholars have pointed out, Islam is not only a single normative view of the world, life, ethics, or the cosmos, even if some regard it that way. It is rather a field of debate, competition, ongoing struggle, contestation, and experimentation. What Islam looks like in the life of a Muslim who turns away from piety cannot be known in advance by reference to any text, doctrine, or even the precedent of practice. Rather than a given, one's relationship to those texts and to Islam writ large is an open question to which many to which Muslims respond in many different contexts. End quote. Quote, if a child learns to pray and fast from her parents, but abandons these practices early in life, how does she relate to Islam or to others? When a man does not pray and does not aspire to teach prayer to his children, yet his wife does aspire to those things, how does he explain to this to his children? If the man's brother steps in to encourage the children toward prayer, how can he react to his brother? And how do individuals who are averse to prayer or fasting respond to the public invitations to piety that they encounter at public events, cafes, or family gatherings? End quote. Quote, What does a perceived difference between Sunni and Shi'i tendencies mean for a Muslim who does not pray? What role has, quote-unquote, extremist violence played in the development of their attitudes? And given that many who do not identify as pious still identify as Muslims, how do they imagine relations with Christians and Jews? End quote. These are some of the key questions and debates to which Andrew Bush attends in his latest and first monograph called Between Muslims, Religious Difference in Iraqi Kurdistan, Stanford University Press 2020. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm Asad, co-host of the New Books and Middle East Studies podcast and your host for our conversation today. Today, we'll be speaking to Andrew about his monograph, which is based on three full years of ethnographic research in Iraqi Kurdistan between 2004 and 2013. By attending to the everyday details of life in Iraqi Kurdistan, Bush's research reveals, as he says, quote, a range of ideas, practices, and social movements that link Kurdish Muslims to other Muslims, but also reveals feelings, sensibilities, and relational dynamics that connect them to non-Muslims within or beyond the region, including us, the readers of this book, end quote. Andrew Bush is an anthropologist who studies Islamic traditions in the Kurdistan region of Iraq. His ethnographic research in Kurdistan over the last 15 years has addressed topics ranging from Islamic law to Sufi poetry to gender and sexuality and and secular politics. His work combines a close study of textual traditions in Kurdish, Persian, and Arabic with ethnographic research into the everyday lives of Muslims where those texts come to life. Andrew holds a PhD in anthropology from Johns Hopkins University and at the moment is a visiting fellow in the program on law and society in the Muslim world at Harvard Law School. His latest book, which forms a culmination of much of his research, is the subject of our interview today. So without further ado, allow me to welcome Dr. Andrew Bush to our podcast. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you so much, Assad. I have been a faithful listener to the New Books Network for a long time, and it's a real pleasure to be on this side of the microphone today. 
The pleasure is all ours. Thank you so much for joining. And as is part of our own tradition here at the New Books Network, we like to begin, as always, with an intellectual genealogy of our guests. Would you be able to share with us a little bit about your own growth and background and what led you to conducting research and then eventually writing an entire monograph about the lived experiences of Muslims in the Kurdistan region of Iraq? Yeah, absolutely. This is very important because the book itself begins with me as an American researcher in Iraq and actually doesn't give the story of uh, how I arrived there. And so that story begins with me in high school, actually. Just after I finished high school, I had the opportunity to travel to Eastern Europe. And I worked there with uh, refugees for a short period of time in Albania. And then I went to study an undergraduate degree at James Madison University in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And over the course of my studies, I developed an interest in anthropology and also my interest in working with refugees or displaced peoples. Uh, grew as well. So when it came time to do a senior thesis, I was interested in working with one of the refugee populations that was living there in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And it just so happened that uh, Iraqi Kurds were a community of about 500 uh, individuals that had been in the area for then about um, five or 10 years. And I ended up both doing an ethnographic research project with the refugee community and also interning at a local NGO that was doing refugee resettlement. And at the time, I was thinking that my future would be in working with NGOs, perhaps with the UNHCR, one of its partner organizations. But when I had those two experiences next to each other, I realized that it was actually ethnography and research and a little bit of teaching that I really loved. And the work with the NGO was not so much my cup of tea. So it was on that foundation that I decided to pursue a PhD in anthropology. And I had the great fortune of studying at uh, Johns Hopkins, where I was based in the Department of Anthropology. But we had a very exciting Uh, discussion across different departments and programs, especially with political theory and philosophy. Um, And over the course of the first few years of my PhD research, I was um, living on a shoestring budget and was able to get some summer funding. And I spent three summers uh, based in the city of Suleimani in Iraqi Kurdistan, learning Kurdish and getting the basic sort of outline of the research project that I ended up conducting in Uh, in full in 2008 and 2009 for my dissertation. So as it happened, I had uh, fallen in with a group of poets and artists when I first arrived in Kurdistan in 2004, and I became very interested in the intellectual traditions that they drew on, which largely revolved around Kurdish poetry. So when I began my fieldwork, I was conducting interviews with poets and journalists and writers and more general public intellectual figures And broadly speaking, I was interested in questions of secularism and Islam. But the more interviews I did, the less interesting the interviews became, and the more interested I became in the conversations that happened around those interviews. And it was there that I was sharing domestic space with my interlocutors and their family members. And that's where I began to see and hear and feel and imagine things about being a Muslim in contemporary Kurdistan that it seemed to me was unique in terms of what I had read that, uh, thus far in the anthropology of Islam. So it's those conversations with people more than the interviews per se that really offered the material that, uh, that I think about in the book. So I want to I move to the terminology now, right? So we've got the intellectual genealogy. 
Um, I'd like for our listeners now to be a little bit more acquainted with the terms of the discussion. Um, in the book, you deploy the word piety as a heuristic to inform your research. Piety or the aspiration to it, um, central to Muslim practice, takes different forms or orientations, as you write, um, is itself contested as a term. Um, and so I would be curious to know, as an anthropologist, how do you measure piety and how does the aspiration toward it or the move away from it uh, in the words and actions of your interlocutors inform your findings? Yeah, this is very important. Um, so you're exactly right. Piety is uh, something like a heuristic, right? And I mean it not as uh, one particular virtue that's separated from uh, others on a list like patience or kindness or obedience or surrender, but actually a broad sort of umbrella term that encompasses uh, all Muslims who sort of seek to be pious, who seek to be good Muslims or proper Muslims. Um, so, and I think of it also not uh, sort of not really as a substance to be measured, but actually as a horizon, right? Or a path that people travel on uh, by which people orient themselves towards the model of the uh, prophet or of other saints or of individuals in their lives whom they regard as pious Muslims. So in that sense, piety really includes, uh, in the way I use the term, everyone who wants it, right? And it only excludes those who uh, are actually not interested in, in becoming pious Muslims. So, um, so the term orientation then I think, I hope is useful to describe how it is that one moves in this landscape where concepts of faith and belief and practice themselves are moving. And yet one's relation to each of those concepts is also uh, a part of one's relationships to other people, to people that one engages in everyday life. And the main distinction in the book, uh, as you noted, is between those whose orientation to Islam I describe as pious and those whom I describe by saying that they turn away from piety, which is to say that they don't strive to be, quote unquote, good Muslims. But as you put it in the question, you're exactly right. Piety is deeply contested. right? But at the same time, there are Muslims who stand aloof from that contest. And the book is partly about that gesture of standing aloof. So the last thing I just wanted to say was that even though um, there are Muslims who are, are turning away from piety and they don't move toward that uh, horizon of aspiration. They still live in a landscape of relationships with other Muslims um, and they actually can't always stand aloof from contests about uh, what counts as piety. So I treat uh, orientation somehow as like a, a spatial metaphor. And I say that these are Muslims who turn away from piety, but do not leave Islam. And that is the paradoxical orientation that I try to describe in the book. Thank you so much for these clarifiers, Andrew. So I guess as a courtesy to our listeners, I'd like to outline the chapters of the book and then take us through a chronological journey through them in this interview. There are five chapters in an epilogue. The first chapter is called Quran and Zoroaster, Attraction and Authority in Muslim Ethics. Chapter two, Christians, Kafirs, and Nationalists in the Kurdish in Kurdish poetry. Chapter three, mystical desire, ordinary desire, love, friendship, and kinship. Chapter four, separating faith and kufr in an Islamic society. And chapter five, pleasure beyond piety, religious difference in domestic space, followed by the epilogue. Now in your first chapter, called Quran and Zoroaster, you speak about an individual you spent some time with named Pekshan, 
Am I pronouncing that right? Pekshan? Pekshan. Pekshan, yeah. Pekshan. Pekshan. Whom you say engaged deeply with canonical Islamic texts, yet at the same time cherished pre- or non-Islamic cultural and religious traditions. This person, you write, quote, belonged within an Islamic tradition without being fully pious and, quote, passed through a non-Islamic tradition without without becoming non-Muslim, end quote. Now, in making sense of this, you employ the theorization of two prominent scholars in Islamic studies, perhaps two of the most influential at the current moment, Talal Asad and his discursive tradition, and Shahab Ahmad and his explorative tradition. Can you share with us how their concepts function to make sense of this ostensible paradox? Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, an interesting story behind this chapter that um, that is essential to my approach to these two thinkers. So the first drafts of this chapter were really focused around questions of aesthetics in which I was working out the, the idea of attraction and aversion that provides one sort of foundation for the chapter. And even though I had been reading Talal Asad from day one of graduate school, um, I felt like the scholarly conversation had such a sharp divide between the disciples of his work and the critics of his work that I was really uh, uncertain about how I might intervene in that conversation for uh, several years. But then the more I thought about uh, the conversations I had with Pakshan and the more I wrote and rewrote that chapter, it became obvious that uh, it was actually revolving precisely around uh, the questions of what the Quran and Hadith do for Muslims and how Muslims think about what is an Islamic tradition or isn't an Islamic tradition. And these are really at the center of, uh, of Talal Asad's thinking in that beautiful essay from 1986. So it was through the idiom of a test of a sort of experiment with the concept of a discursive tradition that I was able to return to thinking about Talal Asad's work later in the process of uh, drafting that chapter. And there I wanted to see if the idea of a discursive tradition might work in describing the lives of Muslims who are averse to prayer, as Pakshan was, but as you mentioned, also deeply attracted to non-Islamic traditions like Zoroastrianism. And I think that her way of describing her life in relation to Islam makes sense within the framework of a discursive tradition, where the founding texts are mobilized to make arguments for her and to her. She encounters arguments and claims and invitations from her family members and from strangers. But her response to those invitations is to turn away from piety rather than to pursue it. So then to turn to the question of Assad and, uh, and, and Ahmed, I actually see that relationship differently than I think uh, a lot of readers do. And I think certainly than, than Shahab Ahmed himself does, because that book is framed, uh, I mean, what is Islam is framed as a, uh, I think, a critique of the idea of a discursive tradition. But I actually see them as complementary so that the, the notions of exploration and experiment and departure from authoritative prescription are things that actually flesh out what a discursive tradition is and how it works. So rather than one concept replacing the other, I see Ahmed is really bringing out an underappreciated dimension of a discursive tradition. And I think of my own work in that chapter as uh, showing how both of those concepts help us to understand something of the sensibility that Pakshan shows in her relation to Islam where she has both that deep engagement with the Quran and Hadith, uh, but also a sense of fatigue, right, and tiredness, what in Kurdish they call be'azar and be'ataqat with the pedagogies. So um, 
the effort really, like I say, it's not about sort of inventing new concepts or, or combining them, but actually mobilizing those concepts in an ethnographic description that brings out a sensibility, a set of feelings and reactions to the claims of authority that are different from what we usually hear in the anthropology of Islam. So in the second chapter, you focus on Kurdish poetry as a site for exploring notions of religious difference, uh, as well as how these differences played out between the 19th and 20th centuries. I'm interested in this because usually this poetry is, 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 is not really examining it through such a lens. So I'm curious to know, how were the literary tropes about religious difference in the poetic imagination connected to everyday relationships between Muslims and non-Muslims, if they were connected at all? Um, and how did these connections shift between the 19th and 20th centuries? Yeah, great. So um, I'm excited by your interest in this. Uh, so the first of all, I should say the wider context for this chapter is actually a relative dearth of work on the social history of uh, Kurdish communities in the 19th century and northern Iraq in general. Although in the past couple of years, there's been something of an efflorescence in there's um there are several recent works uh, in, in the 20th century history and touching on the 19th century as well. So I'm really uh, excited to see even more work coming down the pipeline. But in this context where there's very little uh, intensive historical work, one key source of knowledge for historians, both those writing in Kurdish and the few who write in English, is precisely poetry. So in Kurdish poetry, we find some really interesting and spectacular accounts of the geography of the city of Suleimani, where I was working, and we're also able to connect the lives of poets with their work uh, in uh, sort of across different networks that connect Iraqi Kurdistan to Iranian Kurdistan and Baghdad and other places. And so then because there was this established mode of reading poetry for history, both uh, in the particular context of Iraqi Kurdistan, but also in a wider Ottoman context, where I was particularly inspired by the work of Walter Andrews and Mehmet Kalpakli, who had described beautifully uh, some of the relations between Muslims and non-Muslims in an earlier era of uh, Istanbul. I approached the Kurdish poetry looking for history, and what I was surprised is that I couldn't find it, that the mode in which Muslim poets described non-Muslims um, revealed very little about the historical relationships between those communities. So uh, given how important the whole question of Muslim and non-Muslim relations had become within the wider Ottoman context in this century, I found this um, really shocking. So in short, it seemed to me that the poetic imagination of non-Muslim identities had been depoliticized. And by that, I mean not necessarily that it was apolitical, Right, but depoliticized in the sense that it was made into a politics of irrelevance. That the political claims of non-Muslim populations living in and around Suleimani were rendered separable from the poetic forms that Muslim poets evoked uh, in their poetry. So the chapter goes on to tell the story of how a shift happens in the beginning of the 20th century. And I'll leave it to listeners to hopefully become readers. But in short, I'll say that uh, the figure of the kafir that used to be a tendency internal to the poet self becomes increasingly associated with foreign invaders or traitors to the national cause. And the Christians that had appeared as a quote unquote, merely a literary trope in poetry become less literary ideals and more historical figures with uh, significant political claims on the Kurdish landscape. So moving on to the next chapter, you explore the theme of desire. 
whether it's mystical desire or ordinary desire. And you specifically talk about how the latter absorbs the aspirations of the former. And you again touch upon poetry as a device for exploring this phenomenon. You write that, quote, poetry is connected to moral striving, not because it tells you how to live, but because it allows you to see some aspects of life in a new way. And that it, quote, offers a language to describe paradoxical orientations to Islamic traditions, end quote. Now, am I correct in understanding that, you know, according to your fieldwork, the mystical desire that was expressed in Kurdish Sufi poems was often translated into everyday relationships? Um, and how did it function to resolve live, those lived paradoxes within those relationships? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Thank you. Um, so I sort of hesitate on this on on translation. I mean, I want to know uh, what is what's the idea of translation that uh, that we would approach this question with? Because if we start with uh, a sort of a common idea of translation that you have a text in one language that you don't have in another language, then translation is sort of the movement from one language to another. If that's the idea of translation that we think about, then I think that that analogy is um, is not so helpful to to think about the relationship between poetry and everyday life in Iraqi Kurdistan, at least uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, because uh, everyday life is always already saturated with poetry. So I entered the language uh, in my twenties, and learning poetry was an essential part of my learning Kurdish. But I think that even for people who grow up with Kurdish as their first language, they actually hear poetry from a young age. Many people memorize poetry just from having heard it. They learn the art of uh, interpreting and contesting poetry uh, from a very early age. And then at the same time, poetry is, I think, not entirely separated from everyday life. But the question is, uh, how can we or how can readers or listeners or those who engage poetry in, uh, in any number of ways, when is that connection between poetry and everyday life visible and how does it become visible and why does it become visible on what particular occasions? And this chapter really revolves around several occasions where uh, my interlocutor, whom I call Nozad, uh, made it clear how it is that um, that poetry relates to everyday life. So I think that maybe we could think about, um, maybe we could think that poetry is actually a translation of everyday life, right? In the sense that poetry makes visible something about life that wasn't perceptible, right? You couldn't see or hear without poetry. That's what I think Nozad is saying in the chapter when he says that poetry gives you, he says, just two words to go into the depths of things, right? It's not a depth that transcends everyday life, but it's the depth of everyday life, right? And when we look at the depth of everyday life, what we see is uh, paradoxes. So in Nozad's case, the fact that a man has a longstanding romantic infatuation with his wife, but also sometimes flirts with the idea of polygamy. The idea that he has a sibling who he knows very well, but who may not understand his relationship to Islam. The fact that he himself is not very pious, but the Quran can still bring him to tears in the right circumstances. Or the fact that uh, a poet whom he loves and who is also my favorite poet, Mahwi, who is renowned for reaching the heights of Muslim virtue, also shows you the depths of moral depravity that lurk within our midst. So what do we do with those paradoxes? I think 
I think that what uh, Nozad is saying um, is that we don't transcend to resolve paradoxes, but that poetry shows you paradoxes and it allows you to describe paradoxes and live with them and sustain relationships. So in the following chapter, you discuss at length the role of Kurdish Islamist movements in cultivating a proper, quote-unquote, Islamic society. And you write that many studies of Islamist movements emphasize other dimensions of their work, uh, typically the effort to shape state institutions, public space, and civil society into distinctly Islamic forms of governance. Other studies focus on you know, paradigms of self-fashioning that these movements employ through discipline, disciplinary practice. Um, but you say that, quote, yet for is- Islamism in Kurdistan, it is the interpersonal, interactive dimension of ordinary, ordinary relationships that has been ground zero for efforts to Islamize society, end quote. This could be the subject of a monograph of its own, I'm sure. Um, but I'm curious to know if you you know, a little bit more about this. Would you be able to give an overview of Islamism in Kurdistan, particularly as it connects to your work in this chapter? Yeah, absolutely. It should be the subject of a monograph of its own, and I hope that someone will write that monograph. There is, uh, as of now, just a couple of articles on this topic, but I rely on a lovely book written in Kurdish by Idris Sewaili, um, who gives the most sort of comprehensive account of Islamism in Kurdistan. And he traces it back to the 1940s when uh, uh, folks working with the Muslim Brotherhood uh, were active around Mosul and started to um, join intellectual networks connected to Kurdish ulama as well. But then it was only in the 1970s and then more intensely in the 1980s that the Islamic movement of Kurdistan was the name of the the party that grew prominent uh, in those years. And in those years, the main struggle, the political struggle, was actually against the Ba'athist regime. So the Islamic movement emerged as an alternative to the secular nationalist resistance offered by parties like the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan and the Kurdistan Democratic Party. Um, But the the Islamic movement in Kurdistan was itself both nationalist and uh, Islamist from the beginning. So uh, throughout the 1980s and 1990s, there are little factions within this movement that begin to split off. And then after 1992, the, um, the no-fly zone is established in northern Iraq and the Kurdistan regional government emerges, which is governed primarily by those two secular parties. But also um, there are uh, Islamist parties that have representation in parliament, even from the earliest days. At the same time, though, in the 1990s in Kurdistan, there was a tremendous civil war, right? There was a civil war between these two secular parties, and then the Islamist parties were also engaged in um, sort of uh, brokering against these secular parties in lots of different ways. So in the context of that civil war, a lot of people in contemporary Kurdistan actually associate the figure at the heart of this fourth chapter of the book, whose name is uh, Malik Rekar with the violence of that civil war. So for uh, many people, they actually can't stand the sound of his name. And yet there are many other people uh, who actually have the same reaction to the names of a lot of Kurdish politicians who are associated with the violence of that civil war. And people are very curious to hear uh, his critique. And he is one of the most prominent and provocative um, political critics of, uh, of Kurdish politics who still commands a very influential audience. So this chapter um, revolves around a set of recordings that include both 
interviews and sermons that he gave in the 1980s, and as well as uh, some talks that he gave over the internet, much like uh, the one I'm giving now, talking about uh, his personal history and uh, his doctrines and aspirations. So I actually downloaded all of these things from a website in 2015 while I was doing this research just before the UK closed down the website because the group operating it had been charged with terrorism. But as I listened to the um, to all these files, I was fascinated that all of the themes that had preoccupied me in the rest of the chapters of the book were appearing and disappearing in interesting ways. So I was fascinated to realize that time and time again, he was talking about a way of composing the self and a way of composing social relations that resonated with small elements of what I had focused on in other chapters. So Mullah Krakar was most interested in showing how pious Muslims could remake society through small acts of advice and encouragement in this interpersonal, interactive engagement with others. So the chapter focuses on that practice of advice as one way of understanding how ordinary relationships bear the imprint of this broader political history of Islamist movements in Iraqi Kurdistan. So I call Mullah Krekar the leading political theorist of the book precisely because he shows very clearly how these small acts of advice can be connected to the larger task of composing an Islamic society. In the final chapter, you look at domestic space as a site for orienting oneself to the Islamic tradition and to the other. In the family, and with the family that you particularly spent time with, um, how did these orientations overlap or diverge, and what conclusions did you reach from it? Yeah, so this, uh, this last ethnographic chapter, um, I mean, I'll say first, I think that one of the major contributions of the book as a whole is to reverse or turn upside down a particular secular assumption that religious commitment is a problem or a puzzle that needs to be explained and religious non-commitment uh, is really only natural and, and doesn't warrant scholarly inquiry. So by devoting uh, attention to this question of, of what it means to turn away from piety or uh, to be uncommitted or unattached uh, to the aspiration to piety is one way that I'm trying to contest that secular common sense. But this chapter uh, takes on another uh, sort of correlate of secular common sense, which suggests that religious difference is always somehow a precursor to conflict, that any kind of religious difference, but perhaps particularly uh, forms of religious difference within Muslim communities is a precursor to, to war and conflict. So here I want to turn that axiom on its head by really looking at how religious difference is not only about tension and uh, difficulty and discomfort, but also can be a scene of great joy and pleasure and comfort. So to do that, I look at this household where there is, as you put it, um, correctly, there's a lot of overlapping and diverging. On the one hand, there's a father figure who is himself uninterested in prayer and fasting, and then uh, his wife and his children and his siblings and his mother are quite committed to those practices. So the chapter talks about how fasting happens in a house where some people are not fasting, and it talks about how prayer is accommodated by people who don't pray, and it also talks about practices like visiting the graves of relatives. Uh, and overall, the chapter really hovers around the idea of an ethos of reception 
as a kind of engagement that lets the potentially joyous elements of religious difference flourish. Thank you for that. I guess as a final question, um, we'd love to know what current research you're working on right now and what comes next for you. Yeah, so the study of poetry has launched me into a study of law, which is another interesting story. So as I was looking at the history of poetry in Iraqi Kurdistan, I was very interested that all of the prominent poets of the 19th century had been uh, trained as religious scholars and were deeply knowledgeable in Quran and Hadith and Fiqh and Usul of Fiqh and all of these uh, religious sciences. And yet in contemporary Kurdistan, those institutions for education were relatively indifferent to poetry. So I went to those places to ask contemporary teachers, why is it that poetry was so important 100 years ago to the overall picture of, uh, of becoming a religious scholar and becoming a teacher of religion in Kurdistan? And yet it seems to be inessential to that task today. So these scholars were very generous in, uh, in sharing their experiences and answering my questions. And then they would frequently end their conversation by saying, yes, Andrew, but if you really want to learn about Islam in Kurdistan, then you really need to come and visit the Fatwa Council. So I had these invitations and I began taking up the invitations in 2011. And then after I finished the PhD, I went back to Kurdistan in 2014 and I had six months on my hands. Uh, to, to start a new project. And I ended up uh, watching the proceedings of this fatwa council carefully, where a lot of people go in having, uh, where in cases in which a husband has pronounced a divorce and regrets it, but they go to the fatwa council to look for um, a sort of solution or a fix for the problem of a marriage that was uh, potentially ended by the husband's pronouncement of talaq or uh, uh, divorce. So unlike places like Malaysia, where fatwas have public standing and can actually compel obedience, Kurdistan is more like places of, uh, like Egypt, where the fatwa council really just has a sort of advisory role, uh, and their decisions can't be enforced or compelled. But given uh, that distance with the civil courts, it was very interesting to me that the fatwa council was also sending people to the civil courts precisely to fix their marriages in the wake of a divorce. So the civil courts themselves are then a, a sort of complicated uh, scene of um, a complicated legal forum, because on the one hand, the courts in Iraqi Kurdistan were given uh, the authority under the 2005 Iraqi constitution to legislate independently for Kurdistan. And so they have a set of personal status law provisions that are unique to Iraqi Kurdistan, and yet they also work from the foundation of the 1959 Iraqi personal status law. So I come to think of these three uh, sort of domains as three overlapping and different kinds of jurisdictions. We have on the one hand the Fatwa Council, we have this very recent um, Kurdistan regional government, and then we have the older state form that is um, the, the Iraqi state, which in turn built upon the civil legal tradition of the Ottoman civil court systems. So right now I'm engaged. Uh, unfortunately, I have no poetry on my desk. I just realized uh, today as I was thinking about this book, my, my desk has no poetry right now. It has all fiqh and fatwas. So I'm reading uh, fatwas that date from the um, from the 19th century in Kurdistan, where I'm studying how it is that muftis 
address questions of marriage and divorce, particularly in relation to civil authorities. And I'm particularly interested in interrogating the figure of the husband and asking how it is that different procedures of adjudicating divorce are connected to different ideas of masculinity and of family. So even though I'm uh, fully immersed in the research and I've only done a little bit of writing, I'm really excited to uh, continue uh, my work and I've come up sorry I said we're gonna have to edit this whole thing out um, sure no problem <laughs> <laughs> thanks so uh, right now I'm, I'm fully immersed in the research and I'm really looking forward to uh, getting back to writing in the spring and I've come up with a tentative title for this second book that I'm calling a history of husbands in Islamic law okay that sounds like a very 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 interesting title um, I'm already, you know, you've already won won my interest, and I'm I'm 100% going to invite you again to interview you for that monograph. Um, Thanks. Uh, thank you so much for this conversation, Andrew, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Um, there you have it. Between Muslims, religious difference in Iraqi Kurdistan, published by Stanford University Press in this year, 2020, by Andrew Bush. Until next time on the New Books Network. Thank you all for tuning in.